0: I thought, you know, in light of this week, and I am one of those guys who will like change my message like, you know, five minutes before I preach. Like, I'm always like battling in my head of which way I want to go and always saying something new. And, and, you know, with everything that went down this week, you know, that I'm, I'm, I've got this voice in my head that's just constantly saying like, you need to do something that's appropriate to what's going on right now. And, um, and then I thought, nah, I, I really don't like, um, what we need, uh, especially in times like this, in season and out of season, is we need to see our hope. That's what the church is, is we're a place that has a hope that goes beyond uh, anything that this world can provide. And a dying and lost world needs to hear that too. Uh, we as believers uh, who are found need to hear it. We need to be reminded constantly because this world is constantly telling us things and, um, that, that frankly are just contrary uh, to what um, our Bibles tell us and what the Lord tells us. So um, I'm not doing a coronavirus message today. Um, uh, here's, here's, the, here's the numbers, the current numbers on coronavirus. God is 100% in control of this entire world, So um, and, and that's what we're going to rejoice in today. Um, whether I live or I die by this thing, I live. You know what I'm saying? And we who are in Christ um know that to be true. We know that to be true. Um, in fact, that is a gain, according to Paul. And, and I think we all who know Christ know that to be true too. That, that 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 what's coming is better than what's here right now. And and so um even though we don't want to see people go through it, it's going to be hard. People are going to suffer loss with people that they love, um we know that Jesus is the answer for that, <clears throat> for this entire world. And so um I, it's so cool, too. I was thinking about this the way um, ever since the church started, in fact, even before the church started, even leading up to Christ coming in the flesh, Satan has tried to like sidetrack everything and stop it. You know what I mean? And I, and I feel like this is just another one of those attempts. He knows that he's lost. He knows that his time is short. And this is just another one of those things to try to get the church off of its game. You know what I'm saying? And in some ways, there's probably some churches that have shut down and decided to forego things. And, and whatever, that's fine. We all know why we're doing that. Um, but isn't it cool that, that even with technology now, like, like it's even harder for Satan to stop the church. You know what I mean? Like there's a ton of big churches right now in Central Oregon that have shut their doors, that have followed protocol, that are trying to like do the right thing, but they're not stopped and they're not shut up. Because there's things like going over the, the stinking air right now um, to, to maybe even more people, you know what I'm saying? And so again, God wins, you know, every time like he's he, he's a hundred steps ahead of Satan, and um, and, and Satan's just not going to stop the church. It can't be stopped. And so, um, but having said that, this is cool that we're face to face, able to impart blessing to each other, able to see each other, not touch each other, not kiss each other, or hug each other, but we're able to see each other. And be like, I'm okay, you're okay, we're in this thing together um, as a result of Christ. And so we're going to look at the gospel today. I I know that's weird, I know that's something we don't usually do, um, but that's what we're going to do. And so we're going to be in Galatians, that's uh, the book that me and Chad have been going through, is Galatians, we're in chapter 2. And we're going to go, um, we're going to go verse 15 to the end of the chapter, and, and th- this is one of the reasons I didn't change the, the message today. Because today we get to look at perhaps one of the most, and this I know this is a bold statement, that's a dumb statement, but I think you get where I'm coming from. We get to look at one of the most important passages in our entire Bibles today, and that's Galatians 2:15 to the end of the chapter, and it's important. Because it dispels any idea that you and I might have that God saves us based upon our own ability to do or to be something that causes us to be justified. This is the crux of Christianity right here. In fact, 500 years ago, the church was in some trouble, it looked like. Because the church was basically rolled up into one church called the universal church, called the Catholic church. And you and I sit here today, and we sit here every day in our homes or our cars or workplaces or whatever, and we have these, right? And 500 years ago, common people, everyday people didn't have these. They couldn't just go to their desk or go to their nightstand and open one of these things up. They had to rely on what the church was telling them. To find out what God had to say, and as a result of that, because the church had a monopoly on the Word of God, they were abusing it, they were manipulating it, and they were using it wrong. They were using it for their own power and their own gain. And God did something 500 years ago, where He started taking a handful of men from different places and putting it in them to go to monasteries and become monks and start to study under the Word, have Scripture laid out in front of them. And there were a few of them who, when they came to this book and this section of this book, were awakened by truth to the gospel of how one is justified and how one is saved. And it sparked what we call the Reformation. And those men lost their lives. Those men went to the stake to be burnt because they were translating Scripture they were they were um, they were broadcasting a gospel of justification by faith in Christ alone against the church, and so like um, I want you to know that like there's some um, special value even in, in in these these verses that we're going to look at this morning. So let's go ahead and read this section. Chapter two, verse fifteen, Galatians. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This statement can look kind of funny. Gentile sinners, like it's a hit, like it's an insult But actually, that's just how they referred to us people, Gentiles, people who were outside the law. That's all he's saying. Okay, the law was given to Israel. It was given to the Jews. Right. And so when they referred to all the nations around them that were non-Jewish, they didn't have the law. So they were automatically considered sinners. Okay, so when he's saying that, that's what he's talking about. He speaks to this again in 17. He says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be quote unquote sinners, is in Christ the servant of sin? Certainly not. Again, this is an odd uh, worded verse, but Paul's just speaking directly to what he just said in, in 15. If we backed up a little farther into what Chad preached prior to this, leading up to this, Paul is actually um, giving us an example of how he even had to go before the apostles in Jerusalem um, and had to call them out um, on their false use of justification, on their false use of salvation. They were still playing games that the Jews were varsity and everybody else, the Gentiles were, were junior varsity, okay? Like like they were the real deal and everyone else was below them. Why? Because of the law. Because they were given the law. Okay? This is what the Judaizers were doing. And so Peter, knowing that justification uh, uh, by faith in Christ alone was real, found himself mingling with Gentiles. Right? He was eating at their table with them. But as soon as his Jewish buddies would show up, he'd bail. He'd jump that table and he'd go over to the Jewish table. Okay? And so he was basically like being two faced. Okay, he was being a hypocrite is what he was being, because Peter knew that these people were saved just like he was. But when his buddies showed up, he didn't want them to think that. And he was playing both sides of the aisle. And so Paul had to, like, call him on that. He had to he had to be like, you need to stop being a hypocrite. You need to stop like like we're all saved the same way, no matter what, which is what this is all um, aiming for. Paul is also saying, if you think the Gentile is less than us because Christ is their justification and not the law, what does that say about Christ? What does that say about Jesus? That he's some second string solution? A servant of sin, even, he says there. Right? Because Gentiles are lawless sinners? No, not at all. He's saying that, Paul's saying that we, Jews, do not possess what justifies them any more than what they lack. OK, we need the same thing. He goes on in 18 for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor for through the lie died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith. I'm thinking of you, Derek, right now um, in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. Nullify just meaning to render useless. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Okay. There are three, I want to break this down into three pieces, bring out three things um, in in these verses. Number one is this. Justification comes through faith in Christ, not works of the law. It did not take me long to figure out that first point. It's in the text, okay? Justification comes through faith in Jesus, not works of the law. We see this bombshell clearly in verses 15 and 16. And all that the works of the law means is an attempt to perform what's in the law to be justified, okay? It's an attempt to follow that which has been prescribed to us through the law. Now, first off, this is the theology portion, really, of Galatians, okay? We've had kind of like some um, some personal narrative, some narrative of Paul and his background up to this point. This is where he really starts digging into the theology of this letter. This is going to continue. He's going to con- continue to unfold this theology throughout the rest of the letter. And so I don't want to kill it right now, okay? We're going to step into this. But I do think starting that it's good for us to become acquainted or familiar with a few of these things that are going to be main players in this theology. One being the law. Okay? What does Paul mean when he talks about the law? The most common answer that I found is that the law represents the commands of the Old Covenant under Moses as well as the Aaronic priesthood. That's when Aaron was a priest, beginning with and culminating in the Ten Commandments. I like that. The problem is that what we're really, what he's really battling against here, the work that's being battled against with the Galatians is circumcision. When was circumcision given? Long before Moses. Genesis chapter 17, it was given to Abraham, you know. So I, I do believe that we can probably bring everything back to and roll everything up inside of the Ten Commandments. That's, that's pretty safe. But um, I believe that really when Paul's talking about the law, it's anything that's commanded by God on, for righteousness, basically. Anything that was commanded by God for righteousness, We're going to stick with the Ten Commandments because there's only ten of them. And uh, I can do ten things. I can remember. Well, I, I'm sorry, I can't. That's a bad statement. I cannot do ten things. I can remember ten things. I can think about that. Um, what do the Ten Commandments do? They manifest to us what true righteousness looks like and how it is achieved. Do you agree with that statement? The problem is that even though the law identifies righteousness, Shows us what's right, what righteousness is. It doesn't provide us with righteousness. That's the problem. It can't give it to us. Right? It doesn't give it to us even if we try to give ourselves to it. Okay? So what's the purpose of the law? If the law could never actually save us, why did God give the law? What does it do? And... Um, there's a debate among some theologians about the uses of the law. Um, uh, some people will say there's two real uses of the law purposes. Um, I'm one of those who believes that there's three. Okay. And I just want, I, again, I believe this is important for how we go forward and understand what it is Paul's going to say. So we're going to talk about this a little bit. Let's talk about those three uses of the law. Why did God give the law? What was the purpose of it in our lives if it could never save us? Right? Fair question. Number one, the law accuses us. It accuses us. It condemns us. It's a form of measurement for us to examine our righteousness by, to compare ourselves to, to see how we're doing. And when you compare yourself to the law to see how you're doing... How are you doing? Yeah, it doesn't look good. Thumbs down. We are found wanting when we do that. We are found lacking. We are found with a deficit when we look at the the law. It shows our inability to measure up to it. That's a purpose. It shows our inability to measure up to us. Paul is going to go in chapter 3, verse 24, he's going to go on to tell us, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, not to save us, but to keep us in line. In other words, the law was a taskmaster. It was a schoolmaster, right? Not a redemptive one, but an authoritative one. The law is meant to actually crush us and show us our sin. And so it's so weird to me when I look at it sometimes and think, I could do that. I, will, I can walk up to the law. I can examine myself by the law. I can see my deficit and then go, I think I can do this thing. Number one, the law is there to crush us and to show us our sin. The law accuses. Number two, second use of the law, the law restrains. This is civil, Right. This is something that we would even uh, consider civil law. The law of God has a civil use to it. And it's good. It allows all of us who are extremely different, um, who come from different places and have different ideas of how life should be done, to play well in the sandbox with each other. This is one of the reasons why God gave the law to the Israelites, to the children of Israel, while they're out in their wilderness. While they're bickering and complaining. While they've got all these fleshly desires going on inside of them. You know, they needed the do not covet your neighbor's stuff. Do not steal your neighbor's wife. Like they needed that stuff so that they could all do life together. And it did. It doesn't, again, stop sin from occurring in the hearts of man or even in the actions of man. But it restrains it. That's a good word. The law is a restrainer. It's a restrainer. There's so much talk. I don't care what side of the aisle that you're on. I'm sick. I'm I'm so, like, sick of hearing, and I get it, like the talk against our government, the talk against police, the talk against the military. Now, these are imperfect organizations. They're imperfect people that we're dealing with. But they restrain more than you and I will ever know. And they do it under the authority of God and not themselves. And we need to remember that. In the 80s, I was this little punk rocker kid. And uh, I used to go around, I used to go around like doing the anarchy signs like everywhere, like writing i 'd spray paint them on the walls like i didn 't even know what it meant you know what i mean like it's just what you did if you were a punk rocker you know what i mean we're anti government anti establishment you know that 's what what punk rock is, and it was just it's ridiculous for me to think about uh, right now we need these, these platforms, these restraints that God has, has put, um, over us. They're all there to restrain evil. And I think the first time that this really hit me was when I was 10. Um, I saw this stupid little movie called Lord of the flies, which actually was pretty rad, but at the time it like ruined me. Right. And so like HBO had just come out. It was like early eighties. Um, they would run the same movie like all day long for like, periods of time. And, um, and we weren't allowed to watch HBO. So like me and my brother would get off school, uh, get home from school around three thirty. mom and dad went home from work around five thirty. So we had two hours to do things that we weren't supposed to do. And one of them was to get, uh, on HBO and, and watch stuff that we weren't supposed to watch. And I remember getting on there and Lord of the flies was on there. You know what I mean? That movie would get played off. And I remember being like horrified the first time I saw it and it's not a horror movie, right? It was this it was this reality that if all authoritative structures were removed that things are going to get re- things would be really bad that people are really ugly. We see that right now on Facebook feeds of people taking shots of people fighting over stupid things in the stores. Like our depravity is real. All we need is for the restraints to be removed. And that was the thing that hit me with that movie is because at the end you see the main character, um, Teddy, I think was his name. And this dude's running for his life from the pig on a stick group. You know what I mean? They're like running after him to kill him. They're going to kill him. Right? Like all sense is gone. And it shows him running out onto this beach and he trips and falls at the foot of an adult. The adults finally show up on the island. And this kid looks up at this adult and he looks down and he just starts weeping. And he's weeping for joy because the restrainer, the order, has finally arrived to put an end to the nightmare, right? The law of God does the same thing with us in our lives. It does the same thing. I do want you to hear this because I think it's pertinent to hear, especially uh, with the political climate that we live in. We've got an election coming up Um this kind of rocked my world the first time I consciously read this out of the Bible. Um, it was one of those things I, I didn't think should exist in the Bible, and it did. And it caused me to have to look at myself, like, really closely and, and redo my, uh, my worldview. Um, Paul says this, Romans 13, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Then do what is good, and you will receive God's approval. You know what this is saying? If we are against the government, in action or in speech or whatever, we're actually against what God has put in place. We're actually speaking against Him. It doesn't matter if they're God-fearers or God-lovers. God uses all of them for His purpose. And so knowing that God is the one backing them, we should have a reverence that is reasonable, knowing that it's God who does it. Let me also put it this way. This is what Paul's saying. When Reagan was president, it's because God put him there. When Bush number one was president, it's because God put him there. When Clinton became president, is where some of you going to be like, nah, yeah. It's because God put him there. When Bush number two became president, it's because God put him there. When Obama became president, it's because God put him there. Trump is our president right now because God put him there. Not Russia. And whoever's coming next in November, it's because God put them there. God is not subject to the polls. The poles are subject to God. Do we understand that? It doesn't mean that everything they do is righteous. It doesn't mean that everything they do is God-fearing. But they are there to restrain by God for our good. No matter who they are. God's got a plan in each and every one of them. Okay. The law, likewise, was there to restrain. It's there for our good. It's there to keep us from strangling each other when we get annoyed with each other. Right? With no consequence. The third use of the law, the law gives blessing once we're alive to Christ. That's an important qualifier. The law gives blessing once we're alive to it in Christ. In other words, the law goes from being something that only condemns to something that now facilitates life and godliness we see things throughout the scripture like what David says in Psalm 19:7 and 8, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord, which is law, are right, rejoicing the heart, bringing joy to the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It's blessing it's blessing because Christ has fulfilled the law in its entirety on our behalf. We can now look upon the law, not only be crushed by it, but for blessing from it. The difference is Christ. We can desire to walk in the law now and to perform the law, not for justification, but because we have now been justified. Obviously, the use that of the law that Paul's using here in this letter that he's battling against um, is the first use. It's this notion that we can be justified by works of the law, and we can't. That's not what the law is intended to do, justify us. Again, the law can show us righteousness, it can reveal righteousness, but it cannot impart righteousness to us. And that's an important distinction to make. Now, what is Justification. By Paul's usage of it here, it means the acquittal of a guilty person before God's judgment seat. Very simply put, justification is to be made right before God. Justification is to be made right. It's to take something that's wrong and make it right. And it comes from the word just, and from it we get the word justice, which is a word that we either really love or we really hate, depending on which side of it we're on. Right? Right? When we think of the word justice, we think of the penal system, otherwise referred to as the justice system. And even though our justice system is broken, in many ways, it's overall a blessing to you and me and to all of society. In many ways, we can think of God's justice system much like we think of ours, except God's justice system is not broken. It is not corrupt. It is not subject to error. Think of it this way. With our earthly justice system, it's bringing checks and balances to people's physical actions through the upholding of earthly laws. With God's justice system, it's bringing checks and balances to people's spiritual actions, the ones going on here and the ones going on here, through the upholding of the law according to righteousness. In other words, God's spiritual judicial system focuses on the hidden rather than the behavioral, right? Which is the real reason for the behavioral what's going on in here ultimately dictates what happens outside of us and how we carry that out and how we work that out one of the objections that I hear most when I talk to um, non-believers and have conversations about the Lord and have conversations even about justification or how someone is saved I, I hear more than anything else this question how can a good God send people to hell and be good you guys ever heard that one? How can a good God send people to be hell to, to hell and be good? And the answer is the same way that a good judge will take a criminal and send them to jail and be good for it. If a judge didn't send a criminal to jail, if he let all of them walk, he wouldn't be good. You and I would have that dude's job. Like he would not be on the stand any longer. It's justice. We know that justice is good. If he didn't do that, he wouldn't be a good judge. If he didn't, we'd all protest and we'd dump that guy. Justice is good. We love justice. We need justice. We depend on justice until we're the offender. And then what do we want? Yeah, we want mercy. And mercy's good too. This is our dilemma spiritually. This is our spiritual dilemma. In action, you can be the greatest law-abiding citizen that this world has ever seen. You may never ride in the back of a cop car. You may never see the inside of a prison cell. You may never see the inside of a courtroom standing before an earthly judge. But spiritually, you're a lawbreaker. Spiritually, your rap sheet would wrap around this building over and over again. And we all deserve hell from a just God according to righteousness by works of the law. All of us. We're first class offenders. We're earners of wrath. We're earners of punishment because we've broken the righteous law of God. And you're going to have to pay for that. And I'm going to have to pay for that. And someone's someone's got to pay for that. Right? Otherwise, there is no justice, and and this is this is where we enter Jesus Christ. This is where He comes in. This is where the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world walks across the throne room of God to loosen the seals of the book, right, on our behalf. We need a stand-in. We need a substitute, and that's Jesus. So that God can maintain his justice as well as his loving kindness. Do you see the brilliance in what God has done? By sending his son in the flesh. By by sacrificing his own son, his only begotten son, and sending him as one of us. God is able to maintain his justice and his loving kindness at the same time towards you and me. It's absolutely brilliant. We put him in a tight spot and he handled it. I don't think you and I would have thought of that. It's one of the reasons I love the Bible so much. Like some of the stuff in here, like a dude, like one of us, a human being, would have thought of these things. Absolutely insane. So at the expense of his son, he's both just and he's both fully loving and merciful, able to save us to the utmost. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. This gift applies to everybody. Paul's trying to make this clear here, right? Do you see that? We have Jews that think they're better than another group. This is why all of this is coming about. This is why they're infiltrating the church in Galatia, right? You guys aren't doing this right. You can't do it that way. You need this. You need what was given to us. And it's a lie. (laughs) Which brings us to number two. Point number two. We must be careful not to rebuild something that will only kill us. And you don't have to be Jewish to fall into this one. We all need to be really careful not to rebuild something that will only kill us. We see that in verses 17 through 19. The truth is this. Even though we are Gentiles for the most part in here that have lived apart from the law, we are pulled towards a works reward system. Just like them. You don't have to be Jewish to battle with this tendency, with legalism, with moralism, with do-goodism, right? Legalism in the church is not a Jewish construct. It's a human construct. It's something that we all deal with. And if we're not conscious to it daily, we will fall into it daily. Daily. I've gone through seasons in my Christianity, weeks even sometimes in a state of works righteousness. Because it's so natural to me. It's so second nature to me that it goes undetected for a while. And the only thing that snaps me out of it is when I realize how miserable I've been in my relationship with Christ. And it's the same answer every time. Vomit never tastes good. Right? Ever. Ever. <laughs> That's what we're doing every time we go back to earning something that cannot be earned. We're going back to something disgusting. We're going back to something that wasn't good the moment we left it and walked away from it. Right? It doesn't matter what your construct was. It doesn't matter how you were taught or trained how this thing called Christianity works. As often as we go back to that thing, that works-based system, it pulls us away from Christ, and it will fail us every time. It fails us every single time, and it's disgusting every time. And Paul wants to make sure that they know this. He wants to make sure that these guys get this. He wants to make sure that they know that their sinfulness is only proved more true and more extreme if they trade in that which God has provided for their righteousness. Bottom line, to return to a construct other than Christ alone is to essentially deny and reject their only form of possible justification. So number two, we must be careful not to rebuild something that will only kill us or it will kill us. Number three, either we're now dead in Christ or Christ shouldn't have died. Verses 20 and 21. Either we're now dead in Christ as a result of justification by faith in him, or he should not have died. It's either one or the other. Either he accomplished and he sealed our redemption, or we could have accomplished it ourselves. Making the cross completely unnecessary. There's a lot of death language here verse 19 we have the law killing us verse 20 we have this this crucifixion that we're taking part in with Christ where we've died to who we were and are resurrected to newness of life it's it's these things right here that we see in the bible this language that happens over and over again this death language that accompanies life language that accompanies life is why we we made those shirts come and die and everybody when you wear them out in public look at you and go what the you know, like, you guys nuts? or Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. See, if we want to live, there's got to be a death first. Our Bible teaches us this over and over again. To come and die, to justification through the law, to justification through works, to the rap sheet of our sin, means to live. It means to be made alive in Christ. If you want to truly live, you've got to come and die. Jesus would teach this over and over again. He who finds his life now is going to lose it. He who loses his life now is going to find it. Come and die. Come and die. Come and die to your inability to accomplish that which you cannot. Your own form of righteousness. Just like with Christ, a death precedes a resurrection. How do we live? We hide in Christ. We are hidden in Christ. It's funny, the language here looks a little different. It says there in 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But in reality, what it's saying is that we are now found in him. We are hidden in him. In order to live, we must be hidden in Christ. And if we are not hidden in Christ, we are not hidden within a fulfilled law. Do you understand that? And if we are not hidden within a fulfilled law, we are exposed to the righteous judge of that law. And if we are exposed, we're going to be found out. And we're going to rightly get what's coming to us. But if we are hidden in Christ, the one who's fulfilled the law on our behalf, we will be counted righteous and pardoned. We will be protected. We will be saved. I don't know why, but as I'm thinking of this this week, all I could think about, I had this flashback. Again, I don't know what, the, what it is with the being a, the kids' stories. But um, we lived on a cul-de-sac with 12 houses when I was growing up in the suburbs of Los Angeles, a cul-de-sac. So it was kind of a rad street because it was protected. Like all the parents were actually somewhat cool with us going out because we had like this fortress around our street. And out of those 12 houses, there were 30 kids. No, it was crazy. There was always something going on. It was rad. It was like the best childhood ever. There was always something, so there was always a soccer game going on in the street or a baseball game going on in the street. Or at night, the street lamps would come on, and we'd do, like, capture the flag. And, and, and the problem was that, like, all the older kids, like high school kids and on, would always be on the same team, and they would make all the younger kids, like elementary school. So, like, we never won anything. Like, we never stood a chance. And somehow they thought that was fun. But we never stood a chance, right? Like, it just made them feel really good about themselves. And we played tag this one night. My brother was so fast. He's three years older than me. He was just here this week. It was really cool spending time with him. I don't get to see him that much. Um, anyhow, squirrel, uh, um, he was so fast. Like there was no way. Like if they saw me, I was done. And we were playing tag this one night. And I remember my brother was pursuing me. He's come up on me. And I looked over and I had this brilliant idea. And I saw this bush. And I thought, I'm going to jump into this bush. And I jumped into this bush, and my brother comes up and he stops and he looks at the bush and you know what he saw? A bush. And he kept going. And I remember thinking, I finally duped my brother. You know what I mean? Like like I I, like the bush saved me. (laughs) You know what I mean? Now now we, we don't dupe God. God cannot be duped. God sees everything. He knows everything. But it's the same way with Christ. If you're not hidden in Christ, do you know what God's seeing? He's seeing everything you don't want Him to see. Because you're still stuck in your own form of righteousness. And you're carrying around the rap sheet of sin. But if you are hidden in Christ, He will see Christ. He will see a law fulfilled. He will see a perfect righteousness. He will see a pardoned sinner, a son, a child, not destined for wrath, but for glory. And this is why justification by faith alone is so important. This is why those reformers 500 years ago were willing to go to a stake and die. This message is worth it. And this is what the Bible teaches. So rest in Christ today. Rest in His accomplishment. Rest in His work. His labor. That you get the benefit from. Lord, thank You for um, a message that is, that is timeless no matter what's going on around us in the world. Um, no matter what the landscape looks like. Um, justification by faith in Your Son. Is the greatest news this world has ever heard. And there are still people that need to hear it. And so I pray even in these times that you would mobilize your church. Give us beautiful feet and lips to carry this message. The people that are only seeing what's going on outside their door right now. There is so much more. God, allow them to know it, we ask.